As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. She taught us to be bold. Never be afraid of making big decisions. The key to that is try and get the big decisions more right than wrong. You can't keep on getting the big decisions wrong. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. You're now listening to The Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies, I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A licensed coach who holds an FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways alongside a vast experience on individual player and team performance analysis. And as part of our insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. I'm Coach Yas, and today I'm joined by a very special guest today. I've got Brendan Batson with me. Brendan Batson is former ex-professional footballer with um, West Brom um, and other other professional clubs, but currently working as a chairman for the Professional Players Federation. Good morning, Brendan. How are you? Good morning, Yas. I'm very well, thank you. I hope you are the same. Brilliant. Yeah, very well this morning. Thank you very much. Um, Brendan, I just want to start off, if you can just let, let the listeners know a bit about what the Professional Players Federation actually is? Yes, it's, um, it's an umbrella organisation which encompasses all the major player associations. So we have the PFA, PFA Scotland. We've got the uh, cricketers, the rugby players, jockeys, snooker players, darts players, all the major player uh, associations under one umbrella. We meet on a regular basis to exchange um, experiences, best practice, um, and to just share... Uh, in making things better for the athletes that um, come under our um, our banner, really. So, and uh, I've got a similar role in Europe, EU athletes. Um, so again, that's to try and encourage more player associations to get well organised. Brilliant. And just on that, you know, that, how much of that is in, I guess, informal in the sense that do, they, do you have a lot of events that take place where you guys engage on, on, on I guess, on a networking basis, or is it just all done over, over some, I guess, remote location stuff? No, no, no. It's, 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 it is really um, a very informative forum um, so that, for instance, um, give an example, mental health, um, very much on the agenda. It has been a live topic for many a year. Um, we can share each other experiences. We can find out what works in terms of individual associations, and we can maybe learn from those experiences to make whatever individual um, 
associations have in place at the moment that they can um, refine it and make it even better for its members. So it is a, it is a very um, informative forum which uh, discusses things of mutual interest and to try and get mutual benefits. Brilliant. Now you talked a bit about you know, um, sharing experiences. You know, we'll know a bit about yourself. Um, would you mind sharing us your experience and your journey, where that journey started? You know, obviously an ex-pro, you've gone on to do a load of stuff, especially in the inclusion and diversity aspects of uh, the football West, the football game in particular. And obviously now you've branched out into obviously the play, Professional Players Federation where you're starting to link in with different sports and different industries, I guess, and bringing all those together in one, under one umbrella. Um, but where did the journey start for you? Well, it was a decision made by my mum um, I was born in Grenada, had my first six years there, then we moved to Trinidad. My family really Trinidadians, so I've got an elder brother and sister, um, both Trinidadians, as was my father. Uh, but my mum and myself are Grenadians. And um, when we were in Trinidad, she made the decision that um, maybe England offered better opportunities for us in the future. So she sent my brother and myself uh, to England to live with my uncle and aunt um, to begin with and promised us that she'd join us two years later with my sister. And it's that decision that led me into football because until I came to England, I'd never seen football. I'd heard about it, but actually never seen it. Mm. And I was fortunate. The, the, the school I went to in Tilbury, Catholic school, um, junior school, I was nine years old. Um, the boys I fell in with were happened to be the football players. And um, that's how I started playing football. Brilliant. And you know, obviously prior to that, you know, I'm, I'm you know, from, a, I guess, a Caribbean background. Maybe your first sport was cricket, was it, potentially? Not really. I didn't. I don't remember doing any sport as such. I mean, I think um, uh, living in Port of Spain in uh, in Trinidad, uh, we had a big savanna, and there was always cricket. As we left school and we were walking home, I remember spending time watching cricket. And the other big sport was hockey, big Indian community within the Caribbean, mm. and especially in Trinidad. Um, but my early days, my memories of early days, was um, in Grenada. And in Trinidad, running up and down a beach, really. I don't remember being part of any sort of sporting endeavours. Uh, as I say, until I came to England. Fair enough. So now fast forward to your time in England, a few years, and you've come here at age six, did you say? I was nine when I came to England. Nine, yeah. nine when you came to England, apologies. So then you know, you moved forward a few years now. You ended up at Arsenal. How did, that, how did you get to that point? Well, I was uh, initially, I was living in Tilbury. I played for um, Thurrock Boys. I got uh, approached by a club in Barking to play Sunday football. When my mum came to England, I, I then moved to Walthamstow and um, got approached by a club there. Started playing football, a Sunday club there. But I then, um, playing school football, I played, I got selected for Waltham Forest Boys. And it was as a 13-year-old playing for Waltham Forest, I got spotted by an Arsenal scout, one of the old great players, George Mayle, his name was, back in the day, and uh, invited to train at Highbury twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And that was my first tentative steps into getting into the professional ranks and uh, I signed schoolboy forms at 14 and I signed pro at 17 as an apprentice for about six months uh, then I signed pro at 17 and that was say, the start of my uh, professional career Brilliant you know obviously touching on that aspect of things you know you started off as a schoolboy apprentice and then started your pro contract at 17 now a lot's changed since obviously when you <laughs> was in that experience you know you was going through that experience oh, yes. now um <laughs> What would you say are some of the major differences? Um, you know, obviously, and I know that the game has grown so much, and you know, there's so much influences from other disciplines within the game now. When we talk about physical support teams, the psychological support teams, you know, even the just the, the medical staff, or and what you know, how how different is the climate though, really, um, from obviously coming through as a young pro then or a young, uh, I guess, academy uh, graduate to now. Well, the the change is immense. I mean, obviously, the biggest thing is the, um, the onset of the Premier League in 1992 and the riches that have flowed um, as a result of that. And the, the worldwide appeal of the Premier League is it's incredible. I think it's, it's, um, it's watched in over 230 territories now. It's the most watched uh, league in the world and probably in terms of spectator um, enjoyment, the best league in the world. Uh, and I say the riches have been untold uh, for the players currently, but that journey started way back, um, you know, from the time we started to... I was at Cambridge United at the time, 1977, started the, um, the move for freedom of contract. Yeah. I'd moved to West Brom in 78 when we achieved freedom of contract. That was almost a precursor 
to what eventually um, became the Bosman ruling in '94, where players have got players have got much more freedom now. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, the game is um, in terms of sports science, medical facilities, data, nutrition. The game is you know like like other sports and like other industries. Um, progression has been important; otherwise, things uh, wither on the vine and die. So, football has moved um, and accelerated with the times. Uh, the difference, I think, from the individual is um, the spotlight on the individual now. Um, you look at uh, even referees are personalities in uh, in different countries uh, because, as I say, the game is so widely viewed across the world. Um, for players individually, they've got to deal with the spotlights. Uh, we all know currently social media is causing a big problem and we still have to deal with um, with racism within the sports. So... Mm. There's been huge changes since I started off in 1969 as a young pro. <laughs> Definitely, and I'm, I'm sure you know the whole that whole aspect of racism is something that we'll talk more about later in the conversation. I just want to take you back to your time, um, obviously coming through Arsenal. Now, some would say you're a very influential figure in, uh, in particularly when it comes to inclusion and diversity within within football, particularly in England. Um, you know, you went on to, I guess, achieve what would be probably, you know, I would assume. And correct me if I'm wrong. One of your proudest moments of your of your of your of your life, really, in, in becoming the first black player to represent Arsenal in the first team. Um, that wasn't in my mind. I didn't I didn't realize that until I'd been long retired and I was being introduced at a anti-racism event in uh, Chelsea, and uh, the guy who acted as a facilitator actually mentioned then that I was the first black player for Arsenal. But honestly, until that time, I didn't realize that. I mean, um, uh, that wasn't important to me at the time I uh, was just a young lad trying to make my way I knew other young players looking to make their way across the road literally in London was um, West Ham with Clyde Best and another lad from um, <clears throat> a Nigerian heritage uh, AD, uh, AD Coker um, and it was up and down the country there were one or two black players making their way um, then it became a flood in the early 70s and that's when you had the explosion but um, the significance of it didn't really touch me until later on. And um, that's to be a first for everything. And I suppose that was my um, uh, my moment in the uh, in the sun was um, being the first black player for Arsenal. And, you know, obviously you said you didn't really, uh, you weren't aware or really consider it at the time. Now, having looked back at that and I, and I guess being aware of that, what does that mean to you? And, you know, what, what, what would you say is something that helps you uh-huh. in achieving that? I, well, I don't place too much significance on it, to be quite honest. Um, I say there's always got to be somebody the first. I mean, like Viv Anderson, the first black player, uh, getting the full cap for England in 1978. Mm. You know, I can think back of many firsts. You know, you go back to the uh, the days of Arthur Wharton. We've only just began to um, unearth the story of um, a black player, Jack Leslie, who played for Plymouth. Fantastic story. Um, they're now looking to raise uh, funds for a statue for him because he's got a fantastic record. Um the story is only beginning to unfold. He was uh, being selected for to play for England against Ireland back in 1925, I think it is, and um, didn't get uh, the uh, the selectors for England when he realised he was black. Uh, decided to drop him. So there's a story there to be told and quite a significant story. So me being the first black player for Arsenal, whilst his significance in terms of um, pages in history, me personally, um, it didn't have huge significance for me at the time and. Up to a point, it still doesn't. Right. And I think, you know, one of the key things that, you know, that a lot of coaches would say um, to young players is that stay focused on their own uh, their own journeys. And I think within that, how, how, how difficult was it? Obviously, now there's massive, uh, you talked about it already briefly, uh, distractions in terms of social media, um, just, you know, and, and all the things that come with that and obviously the peer pressures that come with that. Um, now, if you take take a look back at your journey coming through, obviously one of the biggest things I would say you had to deal with in particular was racism. Um, it's Obviously, it's still very prevalent. Um, you know, we'd like to think that it's something's going to be done about it eventually and, you know, we'd like to think that we're in, a, I guess, a better position than maybe you were back when you were coming through. What would you, <laughs> you know, would you mind just talking to us through a few, some of the challenges that you faced Um coming through as a young player, and particularly a young black player? Well, racism has been with us uh, since um, man first tread, uh, walked on the earth. So 
Um, in football, is nothing new. What changed is the volume. But as a young boy, when I came to England as a nine-year-old, I never experienced racism. Uh, I come from Trinidad, which is a very cosmopolitan country. Um, and I think within the first day or so uh, at school, I had my first experience of being called um, a name, which was uh, always sticks in my mind. I was called a chocolate drop, uh, which at the time I wasn't quite sure what the person meant. But when I did find out, um, it was one of those things when I reacted um, and I just wanted to fight. And I fought, it seemed to me I fought for the first few years I was in England because I couldn't back down um, from being insulted in that way. Mm. But um, the in terms of breaking through and making a career in football, because there were, I didn't know of any other black players um, at that time. I think I was 14 before another, I saw another black kid in the opposition team, uh, 13 or 14, something like that. And um, we were used, I was used to being called names, just playing Parks, Parks football. Um, the problem within the game, the professional game, was that it was almost like a whispering campaign not to sign black players because the, uh, the word was um, we're not brave enough, um, we don't like the cold, um, no discipline, all those sort of things. Um, we're not, uh, we haven't got heart for the game, you know. Um, so why bother to invest in a, in a black player because we know they're not going to make it. And that was the biggest thing I think I had to overcome because I was very much aware that there was this barrier to actually breaking through and I'd have to be a lot better. But I think I was very fortunate being at a club at Arsenal. The manager there was Bertie Mee, who had a terrific um, body of coaches with him, Don Howe, uh, Steve Burtonshaw springs to mind, uh, Dave Smith, I could, I could name them all. And he had a way of running the club um, which to me was the best I'd experienced as a young player coming through my formative years. His motto was, remember where you are, who you are and who you represent. And a lot of things I learned at Arsenal I carried me with me today. But the initial hurdle of breaking through and showing those coaches that I was good enough to maybe have a career in professional football was a challenge, yes. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I just want to, you kind of build on that, you know, you talk you know, about the likes of Bertie, me, Don Howe. I'm just interested to know whether, you know, coming through that that experience, what were some of the biggest messages? Do you know you touched on there, about, you know, a quote from Bertie me around, um, remember who you are and what you represent. What would you say is one of the biggest messages that you've taken that really helped you get through and, I guess, continue on your journey? Well, I think. One of the things I know is at Arsenal, when I first joined, um, the first team players were in the, um, at Highbury, the first team players were in the, in the home dressing room uh, or the first team squad. The youth and reserve players were in the away dressing room and we were colour coordinated. So the first team players had red tops and the youth team players had blue tops. The reserve team players had green tops. So very early on, you realised where your ambition lay was to get a red top, to get in the first team squad and get in the first team dressing room. So they set out um, quite clearly a, a roadmap for your progression. And that was the incentive for us as young players. But the discipline instilled in us, we had a youth team coach called Ernie Wally, who was like a sergeant major, um, trained us hard, challenged us all the time. Um, but there were certain... Disciplines instilled with you at Arsenal, as I say, which I carry today. Um, terms like uh, things like punctuality, make sure you're there on time, otherwise the bus would leave. I saw uh, I saw Bertie me um, drive away from matches when I broke into the first team. If the players went on the bus at six o'clock, he said, "That's time we're leaving." He just go. Um, he was the last one on the bus, uh, so he instilled a certain discipline, and that's what you need within within the professional any professional sport. You need a discipline. Um, so that when things get tough, you can fall back on those things that have been, that have been drilled into you throughout the course of your um, informative years. So I'll always be grateful for my time at Arsenal, although I didn't make it ultimately at Arsenal. Um, they laid the foundations for me to uh, go on and have a, a half-decent career within the game. Definitely, and obviously then you touched there about going on to have a half-decent career. You then later moved on to Cambridge United and further on beyond that, West Brom. How did those moves come about, and what was that? What was that? Those experiences like in comparison to your time at Arsenal? Well, I think I made about a dozen appearances for Arsenal. A lot of them as a substitute, and I realised I wasn't convincing enough in my performances for 
um, Bertie Muir and the, uh, the coaching staff. So having tasted the first team experience, I knew I couldn't go back to the reserves and I wanted to leave. Spoke to Bertie Muir and all he tried to, to, he tried to let, persuade me to stay. Um, I'd made up my mind and he gave me um, his best wishes. And the first club that came in from was Cambridge United, who were about to be relegated from the old third division. Uh, League One into into the old fourth division, but I was so pleased that um, I had an opportunity to be in somebody's first team. I just grabbed the chance, and that worked out well for me in the in the sense that although we got relegated in the end of that season, I think there's only a handful of games left when I joined. Um, we were towards the bottom of the fourth division when um, the manager who became the most influential manager in my career was um, Ron Atkinson, became the manager and um, changed the team around. Moved me out to right fullback, made me skipper. Um, we won the fourth division quite comfortably. Um, we were top of the third division when he went to West Brom, uh, back end of 1977. And um, I was his first sign, and I joined West Brom in, I think it was January 78. And uh, I had a terrific few years there before I got injured and had to retire. But um, I worked my way back up into the first division, and that was my ambition. Brilliant. And you know what? Just just talking, you know, you talked about Ron Atkinson being one of the major influences and probably the biggest influence within your journey. What was one, what were some of the key things that you took from Ron? Well, his ambition was one. I mean, he'd been player manager at uh, Kettering Town, uh, had a successful career, played a lot against Oxford, Oxford United, but Cambridge United was his first professional managership um manager appointment and uh when he came in uh he thought he was the best player on the books in actual fact i think he was still registered i actually played with him in the reserves um, when i was um, recovering from an injury and um he thought he was the best uh, passer of the ball best of free kick best of everything and he had naked ambition i think what he did is he instilled a lot of that ambition into those of us who realized if we listen to this guy, we might be able to go places. He wheeled and dealed, uh, signed players for a pittance, um, young players who had ambitions and things to prove to themselves and to others. We signed a lad called Alan Biley, um, who scored 30 goals a season for us. Um, his second touch was always a goal, it would appear. Uh, sure. He went on to play for uh, Everton and Derby. But we had lots of lads, young lads, uh, lads Stephen Spriggs in midfield, about five foot five. Uh, but could run all day, um, great stamina and um, great desire. Uh, one of his best signings, a lad called Dave Stringer from Norwich, um, old pro, but uh, knew the game and showed us young players what we needed to do to get on. So he had a lot of um, managerial ambitions and he went on to fulfil a lot of them. Brilliant. You know, just you know that that move to West Brom, obviously, you know, a major talking point um, at the time, and I'm sure still for West a lot of West Brom fans, you know, you guys are seen you you were seen almost as a an icon or something, you know, a real legend at the club. Now that move to West West Brom took you and joined you up with a with a you know a fellow black players in the name in the names of Cyril Legis and Laurie Cunningham. What was that like going to, you know, stepping into that environment now and actually being, I guess, surrounded well, <laughs> by more black players? Yeah. The first thing was I had to prove to my new teammates that I was good enough to be there. And obviously, with me being Ron's first signing and also I was his skipper at Cambridge, I know later on that there was a lot of suspicion about me um, in terms of coming in and, uh, you know, one of Ron's boys and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but I was fortunate. You mentioned Laurie Cunningham and Sir Regis. I, I actually saw Laurie play as a, I think it was about, when he was about 14, 15. Um, and when I saw him play, I thought, blimey, this lad's got a chance. He was almost like a matador against um, the fullback. He very dynamic as a, as a young player. And he fulfilled his potential, as we saw at West Brom. And then he went on to, to Real Madrid. Mm. But I'd seen Cyril on television playing one of the cup matches. Um, Built like a boxer, but so strong and powerful, um, but with a, a really nice touch as well for a, for a big guy. But also, I joined a team with a mix of experience and young young players coming through, um, establishing themselves in that division. People like a young Brian Robson, uh, Derek Statham, 
we had two centre-backs in um, John Wilder, skipper, and Alice, Alistair Robertson, and Mr. Albion himself, Tony Brown, who was um, well in his 30s, but was like a schoolboy running up and down the pitch. He's now got he's, uh, all the most, most appearances, most goals, and is a terrific statue of him uh, at, the, at the Hawthorns and well-deserved. So I was fortunate to join a really um, exciting team and um, with a manager who was um, looking to exploit that uh, potential. Now, you know, I, what, I want to kind of move things forward a little bit. Now. Post, uh, coming home to the back end of your journey now, you've now, you know, throughout, specifically during your time at West Brom, you know, you started to really um, push the initiative and the agenda around racism and fighting racism within football. Um, and you've kind of kept that through um, post you know, your playing career. Um, you've done, you know, you've been involved in a range of initiatives. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges that we're facing in terms of that agenda against uh, against ethnic minorities within football, in particular with black players? Well, it's the same. It's the same challenge we've had since I since I started playing. You know, it's um, uh, first of all we have to be accepted as players. Um, that has been proven to be the case. Um, when you look at a contribution made by black players um, throughout the game, not just in the UK, but throughout the game, um, the significance of it, you know, one of the, one of the greatest, Pele, nobody ever referred to him as a black player. He was just a Brazilian. Uh, Eusebio was just a, a Portuguese. So mm. I think we have to get away from that up to a point. But is that transition from playing into other areas of the game? I'm not just talking about coaching and management, but in other um, leadership roles within the game. Uh, that challenge still remains. And we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the energy that that's brought to the uh, debate. And I think now it's an opportunity to stop the talk and start with the actions. And we now yeah. need those who are in a position to affect change, they need to really grasp the nettle and say, right, we are now going to make significant change we've spoken about is too long and I think the black players are now almost reaching the point of frustration or the edge of frustration and saying enough's enough we want to see significant uh, change Definitely. So, uh, sorry Brendan I'm picking up some interference and um, yes, I'm not sure if you can hear that as well I can't uh, I don't know what you're hearing I Listen, I'm in my house in Spain, so um, there's a lot of uh, crickets. Um, there's a lot of noise. I don't know if that's the noise you're hearing. Okay, po possibly. I mean, it, it just started a couple of minutes ago, so I, I thought it, I thought it, uh, it would clear, but it hasn't. No, yet. it could it could be it could be there. <laughs> okay, uh, no, no problem. Um, just pick up. Um, so yeah, obviously talking there about the frustration that black players are facing, um, but obviously the challenges aren't just for the black players, and you know the racism isn't just directed to black players. You know, obviously there's a no, no it isn't. Talked mm. about in recent years, and, and obviously more increasingly now, the conversations are being had, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, there's a massive also challenge for you know uh, coaches from the BAME community as well. Yep. Well, why do you think that? Why do you think that is such a, I guess, a big uh, challenge? And you know, and obviously you've been involved in initiatives, and obviously we met back in 2010 when uh, the yeah. FA first launched their BAME. Um, initiative do you think initiatives like that are actually helping matters and um, obviously you know there's only so much that I guess the FA can do in terms of or the I guess the key stakeholders can do in terms of providing opportunities and supporting uh, BME coaches in, in getting those opportunities however they can't make the decisions for the clubs essentially yeah that's, that's right it's the, um, the clubs uh, they're the employers but um, keeping the focus and attention on the lack of representation within the game, away from the playing pitch, we've got to just keep that debate going. And we've got to try and, up to a point, embarrass the employers and saying, what are you doing to make the game, uh, sorry, to make your club more inclusive, more diverse? Look at, is it representative of what we see on the pitch? And at the moment, it's a resounding no. So I think it needs, I think it needs more leadership from the FA as the guardians of the game. Um, they've got to be looking to set the example in terms of um, inclusiveness and, and um, equal opportunities. So 
through the PFA, we've got an initi- initiative with the um, with the FA, where we've got BAMI coaches. We want them to have BAMI coaches with every age group of the international squads. Mm-hmm. So if we go to the very top end, and we saw it in Bulgaria, Chris Powell, former player, former international, former manager, he was on the bench with um, Gareth Southgate. We've got Michael Johnson with the under-21s, with A.D. Boothroyd. And we've got other BAMI coaches throughout the, uh, the men's game uh, with the different squads. The women's game is a bit more difficult, a bit more challenging, because obviously they're a bit further um, back in terms of um, development. But we do have um, uh, a BAMI coach, female coach with the under-14s um, in Kareen Brown. Uh, so the, the initiative or the... Um, the principle is there and acceptance from the FA that we need more inclusion in terms of diversity, um, ethnicity, gender, right across the game. So the challenges remain, but it's up to the clubs now to actually um, take up that challenge and say we're going to do something positive in making sure that we are an equal opportunities employer, that we are um, inclusive in terms of diversity and gender uh, sorry ethnicity and gender but those actions need to happen now we can't just keep having warm words all the time um, we need to see some positive action and then just kind of build on for that obviously you talk there about actually wanting to see positive action not, not essentially just a, a lip service as you if you want to if you want to call it that um what would you say are some of the things that maybe could be done in the immediate term and if you know for any, I guess, coaches from the ethnic minority communities and the family community in particular listening to this, what would your advice be to them in terms of, I guess, trying to persevere and, I guess, look to... Yes, uh, I mean, if I use the example of um, having um, those uh, coaches with the um, international squads of the FA, yeah. um, one of the things you need is to have um, a higher qualification. So we need to have A-licensed coaches for the men. So... When I started off the bursary program back in 2011 oh. uh, with the FA, which was uh, which funded 90% of the course fees to um, improve people's qualifications for the um, BAMI coaches, aspiring BAMI coaches, okay. we need um, career coaches, those who want to have a career within the game, and they need to uh, improve their qualifications. And I think once we have that pipeline of Highly, more highly qualified coaches, then we can challenge those barriers that with, if they're trying to say, oh, of course, we'd love to have them, but they haven't got the right qualifications. Now we get, we're getting away from that because we've got lots of BAMI coaches who've got the highest qualifications um, up to the pro license. So there should be no excuse in saying that we can't, um, we can't employ them because they haven't got the qualifications. But also we need, we talk about the, um, the English version of the Rooney rule. We need to make sure that there's a, a proper recruitment process in place because the, the base of the Rooney rule in the, in the States was that how do you know you're actually getting the best if you're excluding a great part of the community and that's the same right. attitude we need over here I think you, you, one of the challenges that certainly presents in there, there's a couple of things that you touched on there that I just want to speak to a little bit you know, a lot of coaches say there's conversations I've, I've either had or overheard with, with other people um, obviously the initiative that came out of when uh, raised the number of coaches from the BME communities that had these qualifications. Um, obviously, was the sole, uh, I guess, the aim for the, for the initiative. But a lot of coaches who are not in those communities would say, well, seemingly there's less value on the coaches who have gone through those because they thought as if those coaches have been put through a process and just fast-tracked um, for the sake of making up numbers. Um, and obviously, the second part of that is with the, with the recruitment code um, is a voluntary recruitment code um, presented more with the EFL clubs as opposed to the Premier League clubs. And obviously, any Premier League clubs that want to participate, I'm sure will have and will. But the challenge you then have is how can you be uh, clear and have clarity on the fact that certain people are not just being brought in to take a box as part of that voluntary recruitment code, if that makes sense. Uh, well, I'll start off with the, your first question in terms of um, uh, fast tracking. There was no fast tracking. Um, you had 
entry minimum entry qualifications, which was um, you needed to have your um, uh, B license um, to get on a course like the for the A license, for instance. Um, you you needed at least level two to get on and to try and improve your um, that gave a, an indication that you want to carry on and do your other qualifications. So there was no fast tracking in that sense yet. They were treated exactly the same. In terms of encouragement, that was to pay using the bursary, and that was all the all the um, stakeholders put money in, where we could pay um, ninety percent of the um, course fees to make sure that there's an encouragement, and um, the Bami community coaches could see that um, the game did want them. Now, when it comes to the employers, there's only so much you can do. Now, you have to start somewhere, and it's good to see. Whilst you say it's, it's voluntary, it's amazing how voluntary becomes mandatory in in the, in the fullness of time. So I think it's a start, and it's a positive start. And I think the more we see the take-up from clubs, um, I, I always remember hearing, um, uh, I think it was a black American woman, uh, using a phrase in her industry, I think which was cosmetics or something, and um, she was saying, if you can't see it, you can't aspire to it. So you need to, you need to have that visibility. You need to show the BAMI community, that there are people in positions of authority, um, but they've got there through their own endeavours, through their own hard work, getting the right qualifications, and being prepared to be rebuffed time and time again until they get the opportunity. Now, all we're saying is that we are looking for more acceleration in that process, and it, you know, it needs those clubs to look at their recruitment processes and, and, and look and see at the academies and see how many black kids are in the academies and then look at their coaching squads and say, well, hold on a minute, how many black coaches have we got? We know that if there is somebody that you can look up to and see um, that there is somebody who looks like you, that is more of an incentive for you to, to maybe give that extra. We, we've seen it in teaching, uh, in the teaching industry, where you know, you, you've got black teachers who've come through the process and um, you know, it's no big deal now. But back years ago, when there weren't any, you know, we know the, the problems that impacted on black students. So it's the same in football. You need to have that visibility. You need to show that your industry, that this football industry is inclusive, is welcoming, is, has got equal opportunities, is diverse. All those things, in all the things we talk about, and we can reel them all off. Now we need some action. Definitely. I think... You know, just kind of building on that, then, you know, what would you say to those coaches who are maybe going through that situation? And, you know, I, I know plenty of coaches maybe had loads of interviews and they feel they are, you know, they're not getting a fair crack at the whip and they're just being brought in to tick that box. How, how, do, you, how do you, like I said, advise those coaches that, you know, keep persevering and in the midst of all of this, when at times there seems to be no light at the end of that tunnel. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the other thing that I should, I should mention is that it doesn't necessarily have to be within the professional ranks. Of course. There are other opportunities out there within the game, within county FAs, within different uh, non-league clubs, within local authorities. You know, you can be coaching somewhere it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be in a professional game. You may have to lower your sights. Don't forget, there's only a finite number of clubs uh, and therefore jobs. And the main thing is, can you get out there learning your trade, learning your craft, being coaching? So you've got to try and get your foot through the door somewhere. And that does take a lot of perseverance. No question about it. You know, um, you, you talk about my journey. You know, I knew lots of black players in the Latin, sorry, as, as I came through my schoolboy years and I saw one or two and I wondered what happened to them, I know some of them were discouraged by their parents by saying, no, you're not going to go into a professional club because there are no black footballers. Go and learn a trade. But, you know, I was encouraged by my mum. My mum let me get on with things. Uh, see, I met, as I mentioned before, I had a, a good start with Arsenal Football Club. But, you know, you, you really have to have a, a personal ambition and you've got to persevere. Now, sometimes I've spoken to lots of coaches and they talk about being in the professional game. Now, you may be able to get there, but in a diff uh, through a different route. Um, you know, you could be um, doing some coaching for a local club, lots of volunteering opportunities, 
and then somebody sees the work you're doing. Uh, it's a small industry football, really, when you think about it, but with a huge profile. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, people get to know everybody else and they can see what people are doing. So, you know, it may sound like it may sound I'm just giving warm words, as I mentioned before, but you do need to have a certain amount of resilience. If you've got ambition, then you've got to be resilient. No, I totally agree. I think it is, you know, having that um, that resilience and that that push that you know you just want to keep going, or take things in the stride and use that as almost a, a fuel for fire and more motivation to continue to achieve. If 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 it's um if it's a, just to give you an idea, look, I've been do, I've been at this a long time, and I know one or two people said to me, "Craig, how do you keep going?" I keep going because I believe in it, and I believe that um, there will be some sort of significant change. I mean. This is the first time I was at a protest. I was one of the protests in um, Birmingham um, with the BLM movement. And I was so encouraged by seeing so many black and white kids together all chanting the same message. It was, I got quite emotional, really. And it was, there was so much energy. And I do believe that there's an opportunity here to see some real progress being made. Um, and I want to be part of that in some way i don't know quite sure how because i've been doing it a long time but behind the scenes there are lots of stuff going on and i hope that it will come to be something positive uh, at the end of it all we know things move on but i do believe this is an ongoing situation with a lot of people focusing on it more so than ever and um i'm very i remain optimistic put it that way and i'm, I'm you know i think that's the best thing we can do is you know remain optimistic even in the midst of I guess these dire times. Um, I think the most mm. importantly, the conversations are being had with more vigor, um, and I guess with more awareness being brought to those who maybe were previously oblivious to what was going on, or choosing not to see what was going on. Um, now, you know, to bring it back to bring it back to the football side of things, then, you know. Obviously, we talked there about some of the challenges that we're not facing in terms of the, the, the BAME community trying to get into football. You know, obviously, the, the Premier League have recently uh, launched a new new initiative themselves um, in trying to get more black coaches or black players into coaching. Mm. Do, do you feel that with initiatives like that, it makes it... Uh, it makes it any easier because you know, ultimately you know, the conversation I've, I've had with a few people at times is that even with these initiatives, some clubs are still not buying into it. Uh, obviously, we can't, we can't control who goes in and who comes out of the clubs. However, the, the, the argument is sometimes placed that, well, if these coaches are good enough, they shouldn't need an initiative to get in through the door anyway. Yeah, I think, I think the... Um... It's like a lot of things. You you are looking to the employer to take positive action. You know, it's not like in the states where you got positive discrimination. But I wouldn't be wanting to be party to that. But I think it's a it's a question of how much they believe is the owners, how much they believe in making sure that their structures aren't acting as a barrier to people of color. Um, that they are putting things in place which allows that. Um, Equality of opportunity. Now, time will tell, and there, there'll have to be, um, there will be a review after 12 months, and see how things are working, and if, if things need to be um, adjusted in some way. But I do think that there is this uh, discussion going on at the very top level um, within the Premier League, uh, amongst club owners, chief executives. So, at the very onset, we'll we say, let's see what happens over the next 12 months. And we can always revisit it and say, well, you talked about it 12 months ago. You haven't done anything about it. So you're almost looking to embarrass them in, in a, within six or 12 months by saying, you know, you're not, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. So I wouldn't um, disregard what is being suggested at the moment. Uh, but I think we have to be cautious. We have to be optimistically cautious that uh, things will um, turn out the way we'd hope it to be. Definitely. And I just want to kind of you know, bring it back to your, your journey. Uh, now, what would you say, obviously, racism has been a big, obviously, uh, challenge 
within your journey, but as outside of that, what would you say one of the biggest challenges has been in your journey, uh, both as a player and obviously in the work that you do now? And you know, if you've been able to, what would you say is how would you detail it in terms of how you've gone about dealing? Whew. That's difficult, really. I mean, uh, a lot of times, as uh, when I started my um, my career in administration, uh, uh, you know, even up to a point now, um, I go into a room and I see I'm the only black person in there. And uh, I wonder if things have changed that much in terms of um, attaining a certain level um, within your respective, in- within your industry. But what I would say is that I have been fortunate over the years that I've had a lot of people believe in, in me. Um, I've learned a lot from people I've worked with. Uh, one of my greatest mentors, mentors in Gordon Taylor at the PFA. Um, he asked me to join him when I first retired, about to retire from uh, playing and uh, had 18 fantastic years with Gordon and we remain great friends even now and I've still got an involvement with the PFA um, as a trustee of the charity, uh, the PFA charity. So um, I've been fortunate in that sense, but I'll go back to that um, the word I used before, resilience. Um, my mum brought me up and the rest of and my brother and sister to face challenges. Um, she's, she instilled in us that we had every right to be part of um, any community, um, black or white. So, you know, this, this thing and racism, it isn't just a black issue. It's, it is a black and white issue. And it's about everybody having respect for each other as human beings and not feeling superior to anybody else. And I think if you, if, you, if you treat people with respect, I think you get it back more often than not. And the good thing is that there's more good in this world than bad. And that's been my experience. Definitely. Now, you see, you know, you talk there about you know, that resilience again, and I think resilience is something that keeps coming up in the conversation. Is there a time where maybe you've struggled to find that resilience? You know, and what... what, what what would you say to those that may be in that position where maybe sometimes struggling to find that resilience because there isn't a clear, as I put it earlier, light at the end of the tunnel? How would you, you know, what would you advise to those people in terms of how to maybe draw upon something or is it some a strategy or, a, a, you know, a, a, a way that well, you can it, it, it's on? never been, yeah. Life has never been a straightforward journey. I mean, you always got bumps in the road. And I think um, that's when, you know, you've got to pick yourself up. But sometimes you need people around you to validate um, what you think of yourself when you've got doubts. You know, you speak to people, um, seek advice. You know, it's amazing how much experience you have when you've been walking this earth for so long. Um, And you just need sometimes to rely on other people to give you that validation um, to almost hold your hand at times uh, when you're when you're stumbling just to get you back on an even keel mm. um but you should it comes from experience you, you, listen we all make mistakes again i go back to my mum. she taught us to be bold never be afraid of making big decisions the key to that is try and get the big decisions more right than wrong you can't keep on getting the big decisions wrong but never be afraid to try because even if you get it wrong in the first instance, you always have an opportunity to correct it. You know, it's like um, uh, you're traveling in one path, you stumble, you fall off that path, you've got to climb back on again and keep going and keeping your, your eye on the prize. And everybody has to find it within themselves. I can't, I can't, there's no recipe for it. You can't, it's not prescriptive. Um, I know for myself, I learned from a very early age, when I first started off playing, at, um, uh, when I first got invited to Arsenal as a 13-year-old, going there on a Monday and a, on a Thursday, you had to get permission from your school. You met new friends. You made new friends during that time. When the school holidays came, and then you started back again after the break, suddenly those friends you'd made were no longer there because they'd not been invited back. Um, when it came to Arsenal Football Club, they weren't good enough for Arsenal Football Club. That's when I realized I was being tested all the time. I was under scrutiny all the time. So I always had to make sure that I was good enough to get invited back. And it was always a bit of a stressful time waiting for that letter to come through the door that Arsenal Football Club were inviting me back for the next term. Uh, so you learn from an early age 
to build up that uh, resilience. And I think that's what you need to get through life, per se. Definitely, You've had a, like I said, you know, you've had a, a very interesting journey and massive part to play in terms of that movement around trying to change things in terms of the landscape of race and how it's viewed within the game. Um, and your services to football have been recognised um, on many occasions. I want to take you back to two particular moments, you know, one in 2001 and then, you know, and then another one in 2015. So I think 2001 is when you received your MBA. 2015, you received an OB. That's right. Would you mind just talking to that a little bit in terms of, um, I guess, what those two moments in particular meant for you and what would hope that people can take away from, I guess, your experiences from those two moments in particular and obviously what it took to kind of get to that point? Well, it's um, it's quite interesting that um, it was in the uh, honours list uh, 2001. So you get a letter. A letter came to my door uh, in a brown envelope and I thought it was uh, from the taxman. So I thought, I'm not going <laughs> to open that too quickly. It's never good news when you get something from the taxman, um, especially that time of year. But... Um, it came from the, from the government and um, uh, advised me that I'd been put forward for an award. And once you get over the initial surprise and shock, you do think, I did think to myself, well, how do people think I'm worthy enough to be um, put forward for an award? Uh, so it is quite a humbling um, experience. Um, and... It makes you kind of makes you proud as well to think that people have thought you've done something which they feel warrants a nomination for an award. Um, but I think it, it also recognition for all the people that have helped, well, helped me on my journey, from people picking me up as a schoolboy to go to matches, dropping me off, meeting me at stations, um, helping me develop. Um, as an individual, not just as a football player, but as a young person, you know, um, having to find my way, a lot of responsibility to make sure you're at a certain at a place at a certain time. And um, you carry on the work. I mean, I enjoy, I've been very fortunate that football found me as a nine-year-old, and here I am many, many years later, um, still doing a job where, which I thoroughly enjoy which keeps me engaged in the sport I love. Um, so, and then again, it came as a big surprise again when I got the other one in um, 2015. Um, again, because I've been, I've been working in this, in this game for so long and trying to make a bit of a change in my own way and trying to help people who are maybe following in, the, in my footsteps. And if I can help, I mean, it's one of the nice things, yes, is that I get messages now. I'm, on, I'm not on social media apart from LinkedIn, but I do, people do keep in touch with me and I keep in touch with them um, in a way. Uh, I've seen some of them are helped through, not me personally, but through the, um, the bursary program. And I see they do, they're doing well using the qualification that they achieved. Okay. And that's their, that's their personal achievement. Um, so I've been very fortunate and um, I'm very grateful for those who have, um, thought um, I was worthy enough to be put forward. Brilliant. And, you know, you obviously been put forward for an OB and an MB. In terms of in terms of that, you know, what would you, you know, as we start to wind down now, I'd just be interested, you know, you've done, you've had your experiences of play, you've had your experiences working for the likes, you know, likes of the FA, the PFA, and doing, I guess, various roles in supporting them. What's, what's next for Brendan Matson, though? <laughs> Well, if I, if I had a crystal ball, I'd, be, I'd tell you. But no, I shall just carry on for the moment. Whilst I enjoy doing it, um, I've still got some ideas in my head and um, I'm supporting other people. Um, who is, you know, I mentioned Paul Elliott, uh, the FA, who's doing a fantastic job. Um, people like Garth Crooks. Uh, the three of us have worked uh, on a lot of different initiatives. But also my you know, other colleagues and the trustees that I sit with, you know, Gordon Taylor, who's been a fantastic administrator, um, this changes afoot to the PFA, but nobody can deny his legacy in what he's done in terms of um, moving the PFA on. I mean, he took over in 1981 
his uh, predecessor was um, Cliff Lloyd. I remember Cliff, um, who played for Huddersfield and was a great guy. And he took the PFA up to a point. You know, everybody's had a part to play in making the PFA one of the oldest sporting um, associations in the world and one of the best in the world. Um, so I've been very fortunate to, that this industry found me when I first came to England. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to apply my trade in this industry for so long. Brilliant. You know, just enough, you know, again, we're getting towards the back end of your journey. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that maybe just starting out or midway through this. If we had 60 seconds now to kind of leave the listeners with one golden nugget to take forward and apply in their own journeys, what would that be? Um, I know you've talked a lot about the idea of uh, having that resilience and that, that fight to keep going regardless of what's been put in front of you. Is there anything else that you'd add to that to maybe build on that, though? Well, I think you've you got to love it. I think whatever you do, you have to have a passion for it. Um, as, again, I say, I repeat uh, several times, I have loved the game of football. Uh, from the time I kicked the ball as a nine-year-old, um, it's been very good to me. Um, my mum made a big decision um, in 1962 to send her two boys to England. We, we didn't see her for two years, didn't see my sister for two, for two years. But the opportunity presented itself, and I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of talent. And um, people helped me develop. So I think you've got to love what you do. You've got to have a passion for it. Um, not everybody is fortunate to, to, to have that uh, opportunity. But if you do, then you know, try and make it better, try and leave it in a better place than what you found it. And I think, again, I've been fortunate in that whenever I've been able to do, particularly in my post-playing career, whenever, whenever I've come up with a bit of an idea, people have backed me, like the FA backed me and uh, the other stakeholders when I came up with the idea of the um, bursary program, having done a bit of a consultation with um, uh, Barry coaches and saying, well, why are we investing in ourselves, Brendan, because we can't get a job. And I said, well, if you get the qualifications, then maybe you'll have a better opportunity. And that's the only thing we promised was that we'll help them get the qualifications. Then we say it's up to you. And that, um, that fight for equality continues. And I think you need to have enough people with enough passion and resilience to say, right, we're going to have a go at it. And it doesn't matter. It's almost a bit like throwing yourself at the barricades. Um, not everybody will get through, but there'll be enough. And then there'll be a flood. And I think we're at the stage now where there's enough of us throwing ourselves at the barricade. The current players are now using their platforms, their, their profiles to challenge the authorities. Yeah. And I think, as I said before, I think we will see some change. You know, definitely. And I, hope, I hope we do. You know, there's a lot of, you know, we've touched on throughout the conversation, the various challenges that the BME community face, um, in particular within football. Um, now, Brent, I just want to say you know, thank you again for your time this morning. Uh, it's you know, been a very insightful conversation. You, know, you touched there earlier about um, not really being on social media, but um, having, you, know, you are on LinkedIn. And just for the listeners that are <laughs> listening, if they wanted to get in touch with you, would they be okay to do that on LinkedIn? Yes, yes, I'm on LinkedIn. Yes, no problem. Yes, there's no, there's no hiding place yeah, on there. Yes, definitely not. <laughs> um, so guys, you know, we've been joined today by Brendan Batson and uh, his cricket dinner over at his house in Spain. Uh, very, uh, very <laughs> engaging conversation. Um, but Brendan, look, I just want to say thank you again. Uh, congratulations, obviously. Pleasure, pleasure. On your journey to date and uh, some of the things that you've achieved and, uh, you know, still a massively influential figure, especially when it comes to um, that fight against, uh, you know, for racism and diversity within, within football in particular. Um, I'm sure we'll be crossing paths again in the near future, but I just want to say thanks again. Um, Pleasure, good to speak likewise. to you. Likewise, all the very best. Um, well, there you have it, guys. It's another edition of the Coaches Network Insight Series, where we sit down with experienced individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world, hoping to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that you can apply to help you reach your full potential. I've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. The support is much appreciated please do get in touch with us and today's guests let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts views and key takeaways from today's show along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed ultimately guys the show is about yourselves the content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content on that note 
get in touch with us on Instagram at The Coaches Network and on Twitter at The Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly, guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time, guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.